Thank you for tuning in to Recovering Through Highness. In 2003, I entered a treatment program that was mandated as a part of my sentence following my incarceration. And with no idea what I was going to do with my life as a six-time convicted felon, I was encouraged by my counselor to consider school and more specifically the substance abuse industry as a counselor, since it was one of the few industries that actually embraced people with my past. Very reluctant and nervous about returning to school with my numerous attempts and failures, mostly because drug use and education seemed counterproductive. After being in the program for a while and getting a full-time job as a telemarketer, where I was able to use my manipulative skills to sell things to people that they don't really need or don't really want, I enrolled in Cypress College to focus on the drug and alcohol studies. I had a 4.0 GPA during that entire program, and I enjoyed it so much that I continued and I received an associate's with a master's and even a PhD in my vision. Now, I didn't go that far because some new opportunities opened for me that included opening my own program in Anaheim. Psychology was what intrigued me the most. As I was curious on what motivated people, how our thoughts affect our behavior, our belief systems, and how our life experiences will alter our view of things as we don't describe the world we see, but instead we see the world that we describe. Abraham Maslow was a theorist in psychology who probably had one of the greatest impacts for me with his hierarchy of needs. And at the peak of the pyramid, was a term that he called self-actualization. Now, unlike some theorists who were focused on a deficiency motivation, he was driven by growth motivation, or what he called a positive psychology. Self-actualizers have a comfortable acceptance of self, others, and nature. They're task-centered. They have a comfort with solitude. They seek peak experiences. And now as my podcast is called Recovering Through Highness, it kind of correlates with the peak experience as an altered state of consciousness as characterized by euphoria. Now, some of these qualities to me seem to be grounded in my guest today. Kathy Trin, who is the author of a brand new book that's called The Journey, Mastering the Art of Slowing Down into a beautiful existence. She's a recruiter with a consulting firm aimed at improving business performance by seeking those high-performing employees. She's struggled with substance abuse issues. She's a cancer survivor, and she works to raise awareness of the urgent need for mental wellness and self-care in corporate America. Now, she's a motivational speaker and helps people to find their passion and an enjoyable life through self-care. Kathy, I want to thank you for joining me today. Absolutely, Eric. 
Yeah, I want to congratulate you on your book. And, you know, after having published a book myself, I have gained an enormous amount of respect for authors. <laughs> As we both know, it requires a real commitment and a dedication. You know, I was I was looking at your stuff and it seems to me that the art of slowing down and corporate America is an oxymoron. <laughs> 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 and uh so when we look at at you know the book that you put together right what was what was the thing that drove you to write this book right oh my gosh um well thank you first of all i want to acknowledge you eric thank you so much for your um introduction i appreciate it and i love your story as well so thank you for going through um that i know that there's so much more about you that i'd love to eventually learn about you as well but um yeah what really drove me to write the book was there was a lot of i would say there was like in the program, cause I'm in long-term recovery and they, they say in recovery, you know, we're as sick as our secrets. And for a long time, I had a lot of deep seated rooted issues and secrets that I couldn't tell anybody because I was really at the end of the day, I was, there was so much shame, so much guilt. And most of all, the secrets that I started writing about was I knew was going to hurt my parents a lot. So um, it started off with a sexual assault when I was 15. And that's where, you know, my, my head went was when I, I started writing, I said, you know what, the opening scene for this book, right? I wrote it like movie-esque. So the opening scene for this book is going to start off with me sitting at that, at that bench waiting for a bus that never came. Instead, I jumped into a car and I was hitchhiking that day, right? So as a 15-year-old child, a child, you know, my entire life, I said I got, I, I, I told my story, side of the story to myself was that I was held hostage by someone, but really was it hostage when you're hitchhiking, right? So I was really conflicted with that. I couldn't tell anybody. So it, it started off with that opening scene. And then later on, it, I started thinking and started diving deeper as I got deeper into my recovery. And I started thinking about some other things that I've never told people. And so with that, I ended up having to go to therapy about it because I kept on having these emotional outburst and emotional problems, even when I took the drug and drug addiction away, right? We take the chemical dependencies away. All we were left with was emotional dependency. So I started, I sought help, Eric, as I'm sure you understand. I sought help therapy, went to tons of personal development programs. I walked on fire with Tony Robbins twice to try to get the light, right? And, um, and so, so again, the reason why I wrote the book, it started off as, you know, sharing my story, my deep-seated rooted issues. And it got really cathartic, as we, can, we all know, that I started breaking it down even more. So finally, in the, in the last, probably in the fa- final stretch during COVID, I decided to emphasize the book on slowing down. Because if you if you met me in corporate America, there's nothing about me that is slow. That's why it is truly an oxymoron. They're like, the original title of this book, Eric, was called Slow Down. Stop. Just master your 
the art of slowing down. And then finally I said, you know what, there's something else more deeper. So, um, so that it just really transpired. And, um, and that's really, you know, essentially the reason why I wanted to write the book was to share my story. So that's what inspired everything. Yeah. And you were, now you were born in Vietnam. Yes. Correct. Okay. And how old were you, how old were you when you came out here? Yeah. So I have, I have a little story behind that too. So I was born in 1977 and the war had ended, the Vietnam war had ended um, two years prior. So my, our, my parents, our whole family was under the communist regime for about two years. And there was like, you know, there was still a lot of killing that was happening and it just couldn't, we couldn't live under those circumstances. So as I was about a a year and a half old, my parents decided that they were going to, or we were going to escape Vietnam. So my grandparents had sold a lot of jewelry and furniture just so that we can get enough for the three of us, my teenage parents and I, to get on a little boat. So we had, um, there was uh, four attempts. And finally on the fourth attempt, we were able to get on a small fishing vessel and it set sail onto the Pacific ocean based on faith alone. And, um, we were lost at sea for seven days. So even though I don't remember it, and these are the accounts of my parents, um, wartime and just trauma, it's, it's, it's embedded in my DNA. That makes sense. So I've always known that there was something very special about me. Like if we were able to survive that, I can survive pretty much anything attitude. You know, I'm the only um, sibling out of my three sisters that has that story. My sisters were some of uh, two of my sisters were born. One was born in Fountain Valley and the other one was born in, in Santa Ana. So like they don't have that story. And so really at the end of the day, it's like we have to, we ultimately own our story. So. Um, to answer your question, I was born in Vietnam, and I was so lucky that I um, I was sponsored, and we got to the OC. So I've been in Orange County for over forty years. And then I also noticed on your bio that you're a cancer survivor. So you got you got a lot of stories of survival. <laughs> <laughs> I do, I do. I have a lot of stories of survival, and you know, I, I really, at the end of the day, I don't want to. I typically don't lead my story in with my cancer story because um, I remember how it felt like when I was diagnosed and I did share it and I had a lot of sympathetic, you know, a lot of people were empathetic about it and they were had felt, you know, just felt really bad for me. And I, and I just don't want to leave people to feel um, sorrow or sadness. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm grateful today and I'm happy to report that I am cancer free and I've been in remission for a year. Um, and how I found out I had cancer was, you know, just as we are, I own my own business and I'm out here recruiting. Um, a couple of years ago, my, my neck, I started having neck and shoulder pain and, um, I, I didn't know that was can that was cancer that was actually pressed on my nerves. Um, it was sitting on my vocal nerves and, um, alongside my neck. So, um, yeah, ended up going to the emergency room 
for five hours and, and um, we went to the doctor and got my ultrasound biopsied. And then two weeks later I was diagnosed with cancer. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty traumatic time, but you know, I'm just a pretty resilient person and really positive. And I was really lucky to be able to use um, recruitment that, you know, that dynamic personality to really push things through. So, so I was, yes, I was diagnosed uh, two and a half years ago and I've been in remission now for about a year. So. Yeah. I don't believe in uh, sympathy or sorrow. Yeah. I actually, uh, we're, you know, working in the substance abuse industry, we've sort of removed ourselves from that. And we have empathy, which is that ability to understand, but kind of move away from the sympathy and the sorrow. Right. Yeah, absolutely. One thing I noticed on your website also, and, and I love this, is you have a quote from Lao Tzu. Yes. One of, one of the greatest classes I ever took in school was a religious studies class. And even though Taoism, which is you know kind of where Lao Tzu's ideas come from, was more of a philosophy, closer to Buddhism and stuff. And, uh, and I noticed on your site, you have a, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. It does. It does. Every single, I mean, every day, like my... <sighs> I don't know. I just, I, I'm, I'm, first of all, I just want to say thank you. You know, thank you for having me here. Um, you know, it just, it feels really, really nice to be able to talk someone that that's been there, you know, I mean, we've all been through our, you know, our, our pain and our trials and, and all that. And I, and I, the thing, one of the things that I say all the time, Eric, is I am, extremely grateful for every step that I've taken in my life in order for you and I to sit here and meet right now without this scar or without this war wound, this wouldn't have happened. You know, I, without yesterday's happenings or, you know, if we even woke up on the different side of the bed, like this probably wouldn't have happened. So everything I believe everything's happened and dest predestined to, to be the way that it is. And, you know, for each step that I've taken, like I am complete with my past, but the beauty of, but my philosophy today is that I've already made peace with my future. So everything that I, I do from this point on from four eighteen on the 25th of July, like it's so important for me and every, everything that falls out of my mouth is I, I'm very intentional with, and, and it truly is one step at a time. And every, every decision, every thought that we, that we come across, it's, it's really important. We just have to pay attention to that. So yes, it, it is every, every step. My, with my book, you know, pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success. And, and without pain and the horrors and the things that we've had to go through, nothing big happens. I look at I look at all the people out there that sort of live this normal life that just sort of, you know, walk through and they don't seem to have the big traumatic experiences or big but it's those of us that have had the trauma and have the pain that we have it brings out the greatest advocates of everybody. I mean without, you know, without the pain we wouldn't have advocacy. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, and I believe it, it to be so I'm sure that when you were standing in front of that judge and being sentenced to prison, you know, that was so painful. It's something that was beyond your control, you know, or, or a phone call from a friend, 
you know, and, and, or a heartbreak or a relationship that didn't work out. You know, I've been in a lot of relationships. I've been in a lot of short-term relationships because I'm for one, um, I bail <laughs> when things get too hard, <laughs> you know, I bail out, I'm gone, you know? And, um, so I, you know, essentially my background, you know, I finally came here, came from wartime era, um, grew up in a really gang infested area of Santa Ana. Um, I, my parents were blue collared workers. My father was a, um, or he still is actually, he's been working for the MTA Metro Transit in Los Angeles for over 36 years. And, you know, he, he really taught me how to um, put your uniform on and go out there and work, you know, and just go out there and just be consistent. And so I really have had that foundation and, you know, and, and unfortunately um, by the age of 13, drugs took over my life and that's how, um, but it wasn't like, it wasn't my choice. It wasn't a decision that I made, but unbeknownst to me that I started picking up a drug habit because, you know, here I am 13 years old. I'm, 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 you know, average, normal Vietnamese, Asian woman in America. And I'm, you know, I'm in band and I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm playing, I'm playing in varsity basketball. And one day I actually came down. This is, this is how my drug you started. So I came down on a rebound really hard because I'm, you know, I'm very sporty and my kneecap shattered and it popped out of its socket. So all the ligaments torn. So, um, the, the ambulance was called and I was taken over to the hospital and in, in less than a week, the, the, the doctor decided that he was going to sew me up and, or he was going to put surgery or have surgery. So I ended up being in a cast for six months and my, I started uh, gaining a lot of weight because I was, I, I, I was experiencing and developed atrophy on one of my legs. And so the, all the, you know, the body image issues started happening and, and I started gaining weight. So we went to my, my mother had discovered weight loss pills at the time. I don't know if you remember, but it was Fenfen, and it was a very addictive substance. It was almost like methamphetamines, but in a capsule form. But the problem is, is that post-surgery, you're given this weight loss pill without an instruction manual. Like we aren't born with an instruction manual, nor was I born, like, was I given an instruction manual on how to use this. So on the pill bottle, it said, use as needed when you need it. And I didn't know when I needed it. So I used it to numb everything. I wanted to be high, you know, and you talked about, um, you know, being on telemarketing calls, right? I was a telemarketer. I've been in, I've been a telemarketer ever since I can remember 15 years old sitting there. I sold every product, beepers, cell phones, um, DVDs, DVDs, <laughs> I had sold long distance telephone services, yellow pages ads on the internet, you know, anything. And, and all of a sudden it was on, I could be an actress and I could just be anyone that I was and nobody knew who the real Kathy was. So here I am 13 years old, 14, 15, 16. Now I'm 19 years old, six years of stealing these pills, buying it off the internet because the FDA took that pill off the, in, off the market, right? So here I am, I developed this drug habit and go into college and all of a sudden the new drugs got, came to play. 
ecstasy was in pill form. So I'm like, I'm a pill popper. I can do this. So I started doing that. I started drinking and I'm like, Oh, you can get more higher if you drink alcohol. And I just wanted to get high. So I'm in college, got accepted into Cal state Fullerton. And here I am. I become a full blown drug addict. The thing that really messed me up was one night I remember it was new year's Eve and the boyfriend I was with at the time, he asked if I wanted to do a line of speed and I didn't know what that was. I was like, sure, I can try it. So I tried that along with six pills of ecstasy and it was on three days. We were rolling. We rolled right into work on Monday morning. And, um, I, I ended up getting really addicted to that substance for an entire year. My, um, rock bottom for the first time in my life, I felt probably the most shame that I had, but I also kept it a secret. So it was the second day in this brand new job, Eric, and it was September 11th. I don't know if you where you were at, but I know where I was. So the first plane comes in. I'm sitting on this high rise building. It's the 10th floor in this big call center. And looking up on the screen, there was like three or four screens. The first plane comes in and it hits the building. And I'm sitting here I, and I'm suited. I, I was wearing my suit. I remember I turned to this lady next to me. And I, was, I started spouting out a bunch of conspiracy theories, of course, because I was loaded. And, I, and, the, and, the, and the, my boss walked into the office, into my cubicle, and told me to pack up my stuff. And she walked, they walked me out of the building. And I didn't even know that there was a second plane that hit. I went straight from getting fired from my job to my car and got more loaded. So the day that 2,967 or seven people died and lost their lives, I lost my life, my job, and I lost my identity. Because I, at that point, could not tell anybody that that's what happened to me on September 11th. So if you can imagine like this this go-getter, Asian woman, brand new job, newly minted college degree, had so much shame. So my story, I always like, when then I walked, a year later, I walked into my first support group meeting and I told, and I, and I kept on looking at everybody and I said, ah, I'm different. You guys, you don't know me. You guys all went to prison and I've got this college degree you know, and I only have a drug problem. You guys are alcoholics. And the next thing you knew, like, cause I'm sitting there comparing myself, right? I've got, we've got our character defect and we're comparing ourselves to like these people. And, you know, one on, in one corner of this building is smokers and Harley riding, you know, um, older white men. And I'm sitting here just looking like a foreign student trying to learn the American culture. And all of a sudden it just started making sense. And I just started coming back. I stayed sober for a very long time. But something happened after five years of sobriety. I kept on saying, something is still wrong with me. So I, I started seeking out other programs. So I, I discovered later in life, Eric, that I, um, I'm a food addict. You know, I can use everything addictively, right? Food addict, sugar, codependent, sex and love addict, 
Um, so I had a lot of cross addictions and then I was really confused with my religion too. So that's a whole new spiritual story for us right there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it just evolved over time and, and that's, you know, I just, I feel like I've had, you know, over 18 years now of, of, of recovery experience. And, um, I know that you and I both can help a lot of people. So September uh, 10th, 2001. I was staying at a motel. Methamphetamine was my drug of choice also. My girlfriend at the time, we had driven to the hotel that we were staying at. We came in, we parked, sat there for a second. She was in one car, I was in another car, and about 500 cover cars blocked us in. They said they had a search warrant to search our vehicles. They were the Orange County Sheriff's Narcotics Task Force. They found meth on me. Then they went through our room. There's a whole big story behind that, but we ended up getting taken into custody on that night, posted bail, and got out September 11th and went to the hotel that we were staying at. I passed out, and I woke up to my girlfriend screaming, the world's coming to an end as as I wake up and watch them right as the towers started collapsing. And watch the tires collapse. So we always, you know, we all have <laughs> remember where we were on that day. I was very foggy, very, very foggy. And my last arrest of that four arrest spree happened on January 4th or January 3rd, 2002. So that was, yeah, it was right around the same time. Yeah, that's, you know, it's pretty gnarly. And so years later, I didn't know, but I was looking it up on the internet, but the, the numbers 9-11 is actually an angel sign. And I didn't know that. And I, and I, and I, I, I recognize that why that day was so special for me, you know? What do you mean an angel sign? So an angel sign, you know, when you see 1111 or when you see 1212 or like these, these signs from the universe. So I just knew that when I spouted out all those conspiracy theories, there's something special that was happening that day. It truly was a rude awakening, but a very spiritual awakening. It was, it was almost like a cleanse. You know, I mean, I just, I feel terrible for the fact that people had lost their lives, but, um, it's kind of similar to what's going on in COVID-19 right now. Um, you know, there's, there's that whole dimension that you don't see. It's like the earth is being cleansed, you know, and you know, it's just, it's terrible what's happened now. The Jewish Holocaust, you know, that was another time that millions of people have lost their lives during the Vietnam war. But again, and it's a, such a spiritual awakening. And I knew, and I just, I remember sitting there, I'm, I have goosebumps right now, even saying this, you know, and I, I turned to this lady and she was a Muslim lady. And I said, there's something going on in the, on the planet right now. I mean, it, everybody was terrified of what was going on, on TV, but I was really, there was a peace and very calm presence about me. That's why it terrified them a little bit more. But, um, you know, I just, I said that, this has been already predicted because <laughs> I, there was something when I went back into the Nostradamus notes, Nostradamus predicted two, two birds that were going to fly into this building. And it was crazy. So here's the question. Then why did we survive and other people have it? Right. Oh, that just gives me the goosebumps. Right. So, so that, that leads me to this conversation right here, right now. So now we've gone into about 15 minutes into this conversation. This is why it's happening. It's for you and I to meet. 
It, it really has. I'm telling you, all the scars that I've had, all the moments that I've had, and that, and part of my book, there's a really special concept that I I came up with. It was an idea that I had a long time ago, and you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about it. Um, Buddha talks about it, but it's the it's being here now and you know being present in the present moment like to be like right here like i have a i have a tattoo here i'm not sure you can see it but it says present day so when i look at my tattoo i always go or if i'm if i'm talking to someone and someone's like going back and they're rattling in their brain about like two years ago i'm like what day is it they're like oh i don't know it's like thursday like no it's today and it reminds me to stay in the present moment. So in chapter chapter nine, I talk about this concept and I actually went out and I had to get it trademarked too because eventually I'm going to go out there and talk about it, but it's called the holy moments. And I believe every moment can be experienced as a holy moment. And it's not a religious moment. It's not something that is, you know, it's, it, yeah, it's, definitely not for me. It's not religious. It's a, it's more of a spiritual way of living. So I broke down the word holy into an acronym. And if you can just envision, um, these acronyms as I speak them, but the age is for holistic moments in our lives, right? So you, you would eat good food and holistically you would live um, without chemicals and all that. So there's holistic moments that you can create. And then there's organic moments, like our relationship that we instantly created. It was a very organic thing that happened. You heard my name from someone and you wanted to organically reach out. I was completely open to it. And now we're here. So organic moments that happen in our lives and we can create these moments then there's the, the L moment, which is little moments. They're not less important, but they're little special moments that have happened in your life. And, and all of a sudden, one day you wake up, you're like, honey, do you remember that one moment that happened like five years ago? And it's all of a sudden, it's like this piece of this, this little puzzle to this big picture. And so like little moments. And then finally, there's the why moments in life. So you and I are actually experiencing what I call a why moment right now, which is a moment that I've yearned all my life to be able to inter be interviewed by another author. Like this is a very special moment for me. So I've yearned for this moment for a very long time. So I want to say thank you. And I want to acknowledge you for that and for you to see something in my book or in my presence online to be able to invite me on to this interview. So thank you for this why moment. Well, thank you for doing this. If you were to, if you were to put in a nutshell, how do you get corporate America to slow down? I do have a workshop that I've put together and I've already gone out into the world and I've done plenty of workshops on this. Um, there's multiple areas which I find very important. And the reason why I think that I've got a pretty strong voice in it is because because I've been in corporate America for the past 20 years. I've got a lot of influence, a lot of friends and colleagues who have seen me along the way. So I know what water cooler talks look like. I know what deadlines look like. And I'm able to, to speak on that because I've truly, 
I'm a walking testimony of, of my own program. You know, I mean, now if, if we look at it, it's just so almost so silly to even talk about how we're all forced into the, into this isolation and quarantine period and, and people that were in a hurry to get somewhere, they can't even get anywhere because it's all locked down. Right. So now you have to sit back and you reflect and it's the time. It's like the greatest time right now to do self excavation. And like, you know, I think you said something with um, self-actualization as well, but we have to go in and we have to do, we have to dive deep and dig and discover like where we came from. So, um, so I have, I have multiple areas that I talk about. Um, Some of the areas I talk about is decluttering, you know, decluttering is just so important. It's so silly to even talk about. That. I mean, now they have like the Marie Kondo method and all that, you know, but, but a lot of people, when we, when we talk about clutter, we look at our desk, you know, at work. And I know for, for a fact, the reason why I was constantly overwhelmed and feeling like there was so much burnout because there was so much clutter, you know, systems not being implemented appropriately. And now it's just clutter and everything's done manually. So, the areas that I talk about a lot during my workshops are, first of all, it's physical clutter. It's really important. And um, the next would be spiritual clutter as well. And it's so important because we, we get, you know, as you, t- like, I'm sure you have picked up a bunch of spiritual um, talks and, you know, along the way. And then there's ultimately emotional clutter, right? We have so much emotional clutter and that's why journaling, meditation, and, um, you know, I've, I've also shared to, um, to put down our technology for at least 10 minutes a day because we're always on it and we get so absorbed with it. So I think, you know, just because I've, I've been in corporate America, it, you know, I, my voice is being heard and I honestly, I've dealt with, stress and anxiety and poor diet and emotional eating, right? Because we're sitting in, in at our desk or our cubicle all day long. So that answers your question, but um, there is a, there is a certain way to get to a place where we can actually find self-love for ourselves. And I think right now during COVID, it's the best time to practice self-care, you know? So, so I, I think all of it's so important. And just learn how to sit still. Yeah. And be okay with it. Self-actualizers are the people that become who they were meant to be. You mentioned the word spirituality, which is in the substance abuse arena with all the people that I've worked with over the years, is the word in and of itself where people run. And I, I have a chapter in my book that's called Let's Get Spiritual. And so I really do look at and define that concept of spirituality. What does that mean to you? That's a great question. Um, If you broke down the word spirituality, technically the word is spirit, right? And I mean, on social media, we talk about that all the time, mind, body, and spirit. And how do we take care of ourselves? And I, I believe that to get for myself to get to this self-actualized place was to get to a place of awareness. Like step one, you know, we are powerless over X, whatever X is. 
and our lives have, have been, been unmanageable. But in order for me to get there, I needed someone to, to kind of lead the way. So I feel now like I've had a lot of spiritual advisors, a lot of um, people that I've met, you know, coaches and mentors and the word spirit and the word spirituality keeps coming up. So it's kind of, I start wearing that word like a, a cloak, right? And, you know, for a long time, and I'll, I'll share this with you. I grew up as a Buddhist. For a very long time, I went, went into the temples and I said, you know, the, the gong lives inside of me. Like I, if I get quiet, I can remember, go, ding, you know, and I'm here, you know, I'm growing, I'm growing into more to the Buddhism way. And what does that look like? And ultimately, I was really confused with God because my ex-husband, who he was the one that helped intervene and did an intervention for me to get off of my drugs in the first place. But because of my ex-husband, I, I get I got really confused with God. Like I wanted to learn about God so much because Buddhism wasn't enough. And and so a lot of people had planted the seed for me along the way. And my ex-husband, since he has bipolar manic depression, he kept on going in and out of um, psychiatric wards while trying to work a 12-step program. And for me, like I, I was repulsed, you know, with coming to AA. And so, sure, my spirituality has been, um, had been challenged, you know, and, and so w- what happens is that my ex-husband's sitting in a psych ward and he's going to these meetings. And I said, look, if, if AA or if like these support groups can't keep my ex-husband out of a psych ward, I don't want to do anything with that with you guys. Like you're, this is crazy. And, and so, but then when I, I, I went away from program, I wasn't working it anymore. I became what they call a dry drunk. I, um, I started getting, um, emotionally, I was like, I was really challenged and I got into all these really sick relationships with people that didn't believe in God. And so when, when these sick individuals or these toxic relationships, they said they don't believe in God. I started my, my support group and my, my program kicked in again. I said, well, what do you mean you don't believe in God? Like, no, there is, there is a higher power. So I started fighting against these people that I was dating. And I'm like, no, 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 you're wrong. This is wrong. This is what it looks like. So it forced me to like want to gravitate towards it more and learn more about spirituality. And that's what happened. And so, and so started getting more aware of myself and I started believing I made I kind of forced myself into believing what spirituality really was but um but yeah for a long time I was really confused just like everybody and um and the more people that I started meeting that wasn't all about spirituality I was just like I don't want to hang out with you this doesn't feel good so so yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's a journey. It truly is a journey, as you know, Eric, you know, everybody is at a different level in their life. And, um, I, there's an analogy that I always use. I, I say life is kind of like a video game, right? Some people has life, ha- like life hacked or beat all those levels in business. Now they're a multimillionaire living on a big house, but relationship wise, they're stunted. Like they're still floating at levels two or three. And in the areas of, um, you know, buying real estate, like they know how to do this. And then other people just, I mean, they're just right here. So it's, 
you know, people will end up catching up. So if that makes any sense at all, but, um, a lot of people that I've seen that have a lot of money, they never have anything to work on because they're fine. Everything's always good. There's nothing to improve upon. Mm-hmm. And that's the dangers of money. That's not saying you can't have a lot of money and be happy and be good and that kind of stuff, but it, it depends on the individual and how much they're willing to work at it. The, the yeah. spirituality, I always say, you know, you look up spirituality in the dictionary, it does, it says to be spiritual. Look up spiritual, it says to have spirit. And that spirit is where there is a lot of meaning behind that. And one being the fact that humans have this innate desire to understand why we are here. Always yeah. for that, who am I? What's my purpose? The one that means the most to me in the definition of spirit has to do with having a meaning and having a purpose. Mm. And, I love that. And that's where that really meant something. I want to come back and I want to say something really quick on Lao Tzu. Yes. And, and the reason I bring him up and the reason he kind of stuck out on your website when I, when I saw that was because I do a educational group that I've done for many years when I'm teaching with clients. And the topic of it is called personal power. Maybe you can correct me on this in terms of the story, but I'll tell you the story real quick. I knew of Lao Tzu. There's a lot of stories and, and one of them being the fact that there's still questions on whether he even existed. <laughs> You know, one of the stories was that he was ultimately very tired of the moral decay, corruption, and weaknesses that he saw within people and within the country of China. You know, he was ultimately seeing this decline. And so he went to, his goal was to go live as a hermit. And he was at the age of 80, from my understanding. And at the Western Gate, he was recognized by a guard and this guard asked him to give him his wisdom for the good of the country um, before he would ultimately be permitted to pass. And this is where the the book supposedly that was written was Tao Te Ching, I don't know if that's correct, which was the uh, ultimately became the text of Taoism. And the reason I teach this in the group is because he talks a lot about the concept of personal power versus powerlessness or vicarious power and corrupt leaders and those types of individuals have vicarious power and usually have no personal power. So the power they get, they get from other people and not from themselves. And so I always taught about Lao Tzu and the idea behind what he was ultimately about. And this is a philosophy, but it, you know, it really was to me, it was about, learning how to, you know, think for ourselves, to ultimately be ourselves, to learn to love ourselves, to not care at all what other people think about us, to ultimately find true, real happiness, which ultimately only comes from within, to find freedom, which ultimately comes from within. And so all of these various traits that allow you to have a sense of power and not be influenced by anything external or your external world. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. It really does. You know, there's, there is so much humanity in this 
word itself because if you think about it there's like multi-millionaires and when we were born we were meant to be a happy baby nobody wanted to have a you know have be born or have a child come out into this world and go you know what i'm just going to give you the you know spoiled milk to drink and i'm just going to abandon you to let you sit in your poopy diaper you know, a baby was meant to come out into this world for happiness and joy and the, the, the sense of freedom and the sense of um, curiosity and, and life. And what was that initial reason why we were born into this world was to bring others to happiness. And so here we are, right? We're, we're a little baby and we grow and we start learning the ways of the warrior and we, we seek money, we seek prestige and, you know, and, and all these things. And we, we, we seek self, like our identity. And when I said I lost my identity, it was a really sad time for me. It really was because I didn't want people to know who my, my authentic person was because I kept on telling myself, Eric, I said, if you knew who I was, you wouldn't like me. People died that day and I'm a drug addict. I'm a bad person. You wouldn't like me. And so when I lost my identity, that was like probably the most horrible thing that can happen to a human being. Right. I didn't, I didn't understand. I had lost my identity and I'd lost pride. I lost my happiness and my joy to live my authentic self. Cause I wanted people to know me. Like I would pick up the phone as a recruiter in corporate America and nobody like as a recruiter it's funny nobody ever asks you how are you doing because they're always like okay it's on right they just want to talk about their own job search so I'm like all right no problem I'll, I'll take the intake call all day long and that's one of the, the sad things about my career right and so so I have to come up with these things to tell you that are makes makes me excited but to go back circling back to millionaires and billionaires there's people sitting up at the White House right now that that's not happy so they were also in search for happiness when they wanted to build their bank account. And that's, that's the ultimate truth. And so I think there's no other word to describe peace for me. And when I think of living a peaceful life, slow down and enjoy smelling the roses or eating that nice meal that your family cooked for you, slaved over, loved, loves on you. You know, a lot of people when we're out there, we're rushing through life. We don't, we don't appreciate life. So it's funny that we talk about this. I'd say this is because my original title of this book, you're going to laugh, but I was going to call it don't die with fucking unused vacation days. <laughs> because if you think about how silly or not silly, but how, in your face that comment is there's people that's dying now and that they have saved and accrued all this vacation in corporate America and they can't even use it. People that are in their sixties retiring right now and going, honey, look at this, all this accrued vacation, I get to cash out. So what are they saying? They're saying to their family that they didn't enjoy their life when they had the chance to all these years. So just don't try not to die without with with so much fucking un you know accrued vacation. Yeah. So 
So anyway, so yeah, just circling back. Yeah. I mean, for me, spirituality equals happiness. And if I can say I'm, you know, I'm not spiritual today, that means I'm just not happy. Yeah, drug addicts have lost themselves and the people that are using my, my, the first sentence in my book is I killed that motherfucker was the first thought that came to me when I woke that early morning in 2002. And it was funny because the publishing company actually sent me a message and maybe I should explain that a little more, which I actually really didn't want to, because it was sort of a metaphorical concept that obviously I did not physically literally kill somebody, but who did I kill? I killed myself and I killed myself many years ago and I, I didn't know who I was. And I spent all these years just running around and doing drugs and violating my values and violating my morals and not caring about any, anybody. You, you talked about with childhood, you know, that people born and ultimately just want to be happy. But the sad part is that all of the hatred and all of the abuse and all these other various different things are usually put upon them. Hatred is a taught thing. You know, and sadly, we see that everywhere. Um, and sadly, there are a lot of kids that grow up that are, are not in an environment to where that may ultimately come about. I, I, like I said, I, I, I find it interesting on the, the corporate America side. <laughs> I, was, I was for many years of my life, I was always running. I didn't, didn't want to work for the man. <laughs> You know, when I was 17 years old, I ran off with the Grateful Dead, did that whole, you know, hippie scene for a lot of years and right. never wanted to work for corporations. And I, I, I always felt so much corruption and just so much selfishness yeah. and just so much, we don't care about you. We just want you to make us money. Right. And, uh, and that's the way I've always had always kind of felt about that within, you know, and that's why for me, when I got into when I ended up getting clean and sober in 2002 and I made a decision of what I was going to do, right. Going to school and being a counselor, I was able to find something that felt good. Right. Yeah. I, I spent so many years in corporate America and I had, I was always embedded in these pretty top level conversation with, with executives. And like we said, we were very, I'm not, not manipulative. We were very convincing and we knew our stuff around people, psychology, and we knew when to say something and when we're not like to withhold because we don't want to get in trouble. Right. And so, so I was very good at it. I was, so, I'm, I'm still very good at it, you know, and I keep my language pretty simple, you know, it's not too many fucks, right? <laughs> right. I keep it really simple and it works. People love me. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm America's, I feel like I'm, I'm corporate America's sweetheart in terms of like recruiting because it's just, I'm always so bubbly. I'm friendly. I'm happy. Maybe it was because of all the, you know, the love drug that I used to take, but, um, but, but I'm so, I'm so good at it. However, a couple of years ago, I decided that, you know, there was something that was missing in my life. And I, 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 and I, I came back into the program and I said, you know what, uh, my story needs to be told and I will say it in a way where give me the biggest microphone. And the only way that we can really influence globally is that if we have, you know, a pretty, I mean, I don't know if, would, if you were to agree, but our, our book is a pretty solid 
um, testimony of who we are, are in our life. And, and it's, we are the author of our life, but it's a great business card too, you know, and people are like, it opens up doors. You know, when you write a book, it's, it's kind of like you're putting yourself out there on front street. You really are. And you're being extremely vulnerable and you're, you're tossing all this out into the universe. We don't know where our content or our story is going to land with a certain audience. We can be, you know, when you're up there on the podium or you're teaching, we don't know where people are at during their life, but who knows? What if there's someone that's super influential that has a really large network that you can actually help influence. So I, I decided my book was going to help heal a lot of people. And that's why um, it really has solidified my passion. And, and it, it makes me even a, a better person in, in corporate America because I can relate at all levels now. My record keeps me from the corporate America too much. I, I, was, very, I was very reluctant in terms of writing what I ended up writing in my book because I I thought about writing a book for a long time. And I I had actually written one uh, maybe seven or eight years ago and I didn't like it and I just tossed it. And then I decided to rewrite this book and I didn't know exactly how far I wanted to go with this, but I made a decision that I wanted to try to figure out a way to reach the unreachable, which was a big part for me because I was the unreachable going through my first rehab when I was 16 in and out, in and out, you know, for many years. So reach the unreachable. And I also decided that I wanted to show that no matter how far down in the grips of addiction and that grips of hell that you go, you can get out of it. And I share a world that is never shared of the meth world for some people. Uh, And it goes into, um, you know, residential burglaries, credit card fraud, check fraud, identity theft, all the different things that everybody hates. But my life is a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that's the way I sort of describe it because I did relapse in 2013. So I had 11 years clean and sober and relapsed in 2013 during that 11 years clean and sober, I was a counselor, program director, clinical director, uh, executive director, owned my own program, and relapsed after all of this stuff. I'd give you the shirt off my back. I'd do anything for you. I would help you in any way, shape, or form while clean and sober. I took one hit off that pipe, and I'll break into your house. I will steal everything from you. I will steal your identity, and I will do all of these things. And it happens like this. It happens instantaneously. I, I eventually get to IV drug use. I was slamming an eight ball a day, um, just enormous amounts. And I define also my addiction is not really methamphetamine. It's actually adrenaline. And that's what I was truly addicted to was adrenaline because you, you combine the meth within all the activities that I was doing. And it just was so overwhelmingly high from adrenaline it's really difficult to come down and get, get off of that stuff. But I did decide to do that and write this stuff in my book because I do want to show the people out there that if I can do this, you can do this. If I could do it twice, you could do it once. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. I love it. I, I love, I love that word. I don't think I used it, but I used it in a different way. I called it the magic 
um, magic pill. Everything was a pill. A guy became a pill bottle. Now, oh, I'm going to take that pill today and I'm going to date that guy because he can give me this. Everything became a pill, right? And that's how I related to the adrenaline rush. And I just, I love, I love the way that you describe that. That's beautiful. And that's sort of the meaning behind the title of this podcast is recovering through highness because we don't get high on drugs. No. All, All drugs do is they manipulate your own chemicals. So what you're ultimately getting high on is your own dopamine, is your own neurotransmitters. That's all they do is they manipulate your chemicals, which is what you get high on. And so highness is not a property of drugs. It's a property of people. So if that's true and scientifically it shows that that's accurate, then let's find ways to get high without drugs because it eliminates all the side effects. I love that. And, you know, especially with, um, researching, I did a lot of research on sex and love addiction too. And, um, you know, and, and women get high off of the oxytocin, you know, it's just the pheromones, you know, I, like for me, I've, I used to say this all the time. I'd rather cuddle all day long than like do drugs, you know, cause it gets you high, really high. And then when you don't have it anymore, it's like, you're going to die, you know, and it's just go through withdrawal. And in, in one of the chapters of um, the, the sex and love books, you know, the withdrawal is the worst when you're in your, in your addiction, we're all, we're addicts and it's just the withdrawal in that. And it's kind of like where they say um, where the love is in your brain, it's kind of how high you can get when you're even on heroin. And I, and I love what you, what you said about um, it manipulates the drug just manipulates what's already going on in our body. And that's why I'm very sensitive to like caffeine and sugar so I just need to be really careful, like how I want to alter my mindset. And, and when somebody takes a swig of coffee, they know it's on. It's all, it's all about moderation. <laughs> right. Moderation. Yeah. yeah. I'm one of those people that I don't do well moderating anything. If it feels really <laughs> good, you know, I want to do it. I always remember, I, I tell people the story that when I was a kid, I remember people saying, hey, if you dry up banana peels and smoke it, you'll get high. I tried it. No, I tried it. It it gave me a headache. I started smoking strictly because I like to wake up in the morning. I would go outside, of course, hiding from my parents, Mm -hmm. and I would suck down a cigarette really fast just for the head rush. Right. It would give me such a head rush, it would almost fall over because I'd hit it so hard. Right. That was the way I always did everything. I don't have that. I don't have that shut off, that off switch. No, no, it, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely one to experiment how high can I get, you know, this isn't high enough. Try this. That one's not enough. Maybe this guy will be doing it for me, you know, but it's never enough. And, and, you know, we, I'm sure you've heard it. My favorite word is more like, can I, can I just have more? You're like, no, you've already taken seven pills within an hour. Like how higher can you get, you know, um, <laughs> that's the way my drug goes down. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's beautiful. You know, I, so, so how I'm in solution today, right. I'm just, I recognize that I went through a lot of challenges, have a very high level of awareness of all my character defects, 
I teach it. I share it. They say, give it away so you can keep it for yourself. Um, I trust God now. I trust a higher power. They say that if you don't have one, maybe grab a doorknob, you know, or, and then I stop with the whole victimhood mentality and I'm responsible for another really profound way of living today is like, I know that everything that falls out of my mouth, I am responsible for. So for example, if I say, I love you. So love just fell out of my mouth. So love is a tangible thing. Words are very inert until you put meaning behind it. So if you say love to someone that never had love and was abandoned in a foster home, they can't receive this word. So it's very inert until you put meaning into it. So that's another way of living. That's another way of being. My spiritual self is I am responsible and I own, I have full ownership and I'm accountable for everything that falls out of my mouth today. And, you know, I, um, I set boundaries for myself as an addict. I just didn't have any, right. So set boundaries, make sure that I take care of my diet because I know too much of anything can get really harmful know, I have to check, keep my emotions in check. So a very balanced emotional diet for me. And what does diet mean in the Greek language? Diet is dieta. And dieta is just a way of living. If you look it up on the dictionary, it's a way of living. It's our way of living. How are we living into our lives today? How structurally, if we are living in a, such a clutter home, clean it up, bring a big dump truck in, clean that shit out. You know, how are we living structurally? How can we change our life representationally? And so like for me, everything represents something. It's so symbolic. If I walk around with a broken phone case all day long, it's, it's an annoyance, something that's annoying for me. If something's sitting in the middle of your hallway, Eric, structurally it's blocking you so you pick it up you move it to the side and now you can have freedom to roam and that equates to emotional clutter spiritual clutter write that stuff out and that's an, that's another way i do for me the many years that i've already i have like 50 journals which i turned it into a book i still write i still journal and journaling is just such a cathartic way of, of being. And, and we just release it into the universe and we see these words and we don't have to worry about it anymore. So it's like, I manage my calendar. It's a very manual calendar. I write everything down and I, with integrity, I mark it off and there you go. So yeah, so that, I mean, it's a new way of who I am being in the world. And I just know everything that I do has to be with intention and mindful living today. So at the end of my book, I do offer a seven day slowing down guide. So every single day, there's a certain um, exercise that you would do to start slowing down your life. And you can do a repeat every single, you know, every seven days. It doesn't have to be 21 days, it's seven days. And then you just recognize that, okay, it worked last week. My feet is trained now. Let's go ahead and try it again. And then 
what else is, I mean, and then the more, the beauty of doing it over and over and over again, it becomes a habit, right? So, um, so yeah, a lot of little wisdom and a lot of nuggets of wisdom in my book. You know, the reason that most people don't succeed in life is you were saying that, you know, you come into something, you move it. Mm -hmm. How many people just go at something and they just keep trying to hit it and hit it and keep going and keep going and keep going instead of maybe I'll turn this way and I'll go around it and figuring yeah. out an alternative path. I think it's one of the biggest reasons why, you know, people don't look for feedback in life. You know, they make a, they make a decision, they make a plan. I'm going to do this. I'm going to move in this direction. And so they have their, their tasks that they're going to do and they start doing it and it doesn't work. They hit a wall and they give up. Exactly. Oh, absolutely. So, so if you can think of a place in your home right now, structurally, that it's not satisfying for you and you know that you need to get to it, you need to move that box out of the hallway or clean something. Is there something in your home right now that's structurally that you can change or move out of the way or um, repurpose to feel better? I'm actually uh, completely redoing my backyard. Oh, oh, good. But what made you decide that you were going to redo your backyard? What what prompted that? It's something we we had actually decided to do when we bought the house. That the backyard was not did not look the way we wanted it to look, and uh, a bunch of it was weird. It had a bunch of just built up cement in different places that had no purpose and just a lot of dead grass and a lot of weeds. And, and so we're, we're actually making it, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, making it beautiful, put a big shed back there, put a whole thing of grass, I built a, put a lot, putting a lot of plants. I, did, I built a white picket fence. Everybody wants a white picket fence, right? White picket fence. And we put grass and it's around trees. And then we're going to be building a little waterfall, like a little putting green, and I'm going to build a gazebo and I'm doing it all myself. Oh, I love it. So let me ask you, when did you buy the house? We bought it uh, about three years ago. So it's been over 900 days or like three years ago. But I did, um, I did redo our front first though, and that's done. Right. So, so for a little bit, for like maybe three years, there's some sort of nag, right? It's always been nagging. You're like, you wake up and you're like, oh yeah. The backyard was a little bit different, right? So that's what I'm talking about with structural language, right? It's a language, even though it's it's an item or something physical, it's a structural language. So when we make that change, because it turns into representational language also, and what represents to us, I'm sure that as soon as you're done with that final block or that final thing, you're like, oh, now we can enjoy the backyard, you know, and now I've accomplished, right? And so representationally, it's allowed you to feel you finally, you did it. You finally did it. But then I'm going to also say, damn, now what do I do? Then <laughs> <laughs> we figure out something else, right? But it's, it's interesting. I always, you know, life is all about um, a big network of conversations in our life and it's the it's conversations it's relationships but I also now I'm very distinguished between 
what structural language looks like and representational language looks like. And so I, I talk about that a lot in my workshops and, and people just get it. You know, it's like, okay, you're right, Kathy. I've been bumping into that couch and I should have just moved it to the side a little bit or redecorated my apartment to make me feel better, you know? So it just, um, it's just, I don't know. It's just a lot of, a lot of little nuggets right there, but yeah, thank you for, gosh, thank you for sharing your time with me, Eric. I really yeah, appreciate this conversation. Absolutely. Thank you. And um, if you want to um, maybe give people your website and, and say any information about yourself. Absolutely guys. So I, uh, you can find my information on my website which is www.kathytrin.com. You can also, um, you know, for my book, it's called The Journey, Mastering the Art of Slowing Down into a Beautiful Existence. It's also, it's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble as well. But if you can also, um, if you go onto my website, um, I do have a free gift on there if you order through my website. But yeah, um, feel free to reach out to me anytime if you have any questions about my book. All right, Kathy. Well, I want to thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day. And thank you all for listening. And this is Eric McCoy again with Recovering Through Highness. And I will see you soon.